Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Dr. Mara Kodakiewicz holds the Kosciuszko Chair in Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics, where he also serves as a professor of history and teaches courses on geography and strategy, contemporary politics and diplomacy, Russian politics and foreign policy, and mass murder prevention in failed and failing states. He's the author of Intramarium, The Land Between the Black and Baltic Seas, and numerous other books and articles. He holds a PhD from Columbia University and has previously taught at the University of Virginia and Loyola Marymount University. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Hurtikovich. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. It'll be something from Charlie Chaplin. The microphone will recoil from me. I don't know if you've seen The Dictator. I guess that was before your time. When I was young and beautiful. Shortly after silent movies. Anyway, thank you for coming here to be with us every year. We officially commemorate Herb Rommerstein, who was one of our greats here at the Institute. And each time I recall an anecdote so about Herb. So this time it's going to be about methodology. At one point, Herb Rommerstein got a hold of some documents regarding Ukrainian nationalism and he discovered that they were falsified by the KGB so he wrote an article about this and I said to him Herb this is about the neo-pagan strongly anti-Jewish organization of Ukrainian nationalists and uh, the Ukrainian insurgent army and such? He says, yes. Uh, but it doesn't matter. Because what matters is to find out whether the allegations in this instance are the truth. And the documents I analyze lead me to believe that this is KGB active measures. Eventually, Herb traveled to Ukraine and was recognized by his contributions to that nation's freedom. And he got to meet the widow of one of the top leaders of Ukrainian nationalism, Stechko was his name. And, and Mrs. Stechko turned to Herb, thanked him for his contributions, and uh, he said, yes, 
we Ukrainians and Jews uh, and you Jews ought to cooperate very closely and her smiled and said would you have told me that 60 years ago <laughs> and Mrs. Stechko responded no because we were stupid then anyway so here's my tribute to Per Brommerstein, as always, and uh, I assure you he will do a much better job than me uh, taking apart Putin and his disinformation and his active measures. But he, he would also say this, it's nothing new under the sun. The Moscovites have always practiced aktivnia uh, meropriatia. It's monkey business, all sorts of monkey business, minus violence. So this information is in their veins. That's what they do. For instance, not so long ago, an interview appeared allegedly with a general, a, a, a German intelligence operator, a general. His name was supposed to have been uh, Hartmut Renke. The interview was published uh, on a website called the Durand. It's run by Alex Christoforou. Alex Christoforou is a frequent contributor to Russia today. And then tidbits of the interview in which the general mostly devoted himself to slamming Poland were cut and pasted onto various other websites, including in Poland. Uh, uh, but most notably for English speakers on Zero Hedge. Then it turned out the general like that doesn't exist. There's an American general with a similar name, General Rank, and U.S. Army NATO command was compelled to issue a statement. No, the general had never said anything like this. It's funky business, Act, active measures. Don't worry about it, folks. It's sort of like Russian interference in our elections. They will interfere on both sides. There's nothing to see, nothing to get excited about. Learn, know about what's happening, and move on. Move on. But the business about history is much more serious because it lies in the, at the heart of how Putin's government imagines itself to be and wants you to believe that things are the way that the Kremlin describes. It's, it all started with a tweet from Carrot Top, as she is lovingly known in Warsaw, U.S. Ambassador Georgette Mosbacher. She tweeted, Dear President Putin, this was December 30th, 2019, Dear President Putin, Hitler and Stalin colluded to start World War II. That is a fact. Poland was a victim of this horrible conflict. This was Mosbacher's response to Putin's allegation that Poland started World War II. <laughs> yes. Oh, remember, we're dealing with the millennials. They don't even know what World War II is unless Barney, Bernie Sanders tells them. So everything is new and fresh. 
In any event, the Russia's foreign ministry immediately attacked Moz Bahar that she was, to put it gently, misinformed and worse. And there was a barrage of accusations. For instance, a senator in Russia's Senate told the Poles that they should pay the bill for Russia's liberating of their country. Uh, Putin got all steamed up and several times spoke very strongly about Poland colluding with the Nazis, killing Jews and uh, Soviet soldiers, etc., etc. And, and then finally he went to Yad Vashem, and to the surprise of most, he talked about how all the Slavic people, including the Poles, were victims of um, German National Socialist racism which is exactly how you apply propaganda. Use the truth as a springboard to further lies. He de-escalated. It doesn't mean the business ended, because I, as I said, the ongoing historical feud between post-Soviet Russia and uh, free Poland has to do with the essentials of history. Number one, to liberate men means to make free. In the Second World War, Stalin no more liberated anyone than Hitler did. But Russian President Vladimir Putin refuses to acknowledge this verity. The Lord of the Kremlin periodically regurgitates Soviet propaganda about the Second World War, and lately Poland has triggered his ire again. Warsaw failed to fall in line with standard Soviet fantasy. According to this Kremlin narrative, the global conflict started on June 22, 1941, when Germany attacked innocent and neutral Mother Russia. Thus wronged and victimized, having suffered staggering losses, the, air, the armies of Moscow nonetheless rebounded and they alone defeated fascism, saving the world from its menace. Anything that threatens this mendacious narrative endangers the grip of the Kremlin over the denizens of the post-Soviet empire. Its legitimacy rests on the legacy of the Soviet victory in the Second World War, and Moscow has been running on fumes of that triumph since the implosion of the Soviet Union in 1992. As memories recede, the fumes dissipate, since there is no parliamentary democracy in the Russian Federation, but only a sovereign democracy remotely controlled by Putin, Moscow needs to maintain at least a fiction of legitimacy. Hence, the Kremlin's adamant insistence on maintaining the purity of the Stalinist narrative with all its accoutrements. Hence, Putin is in denial that Stalin's part with Hitler to divide the intermarium, the lands between the Black and Baltic Seas, 
was an indispensable key to the outbreak of the Second World War. Russia's president pretends not to know that the Soviet Union invaded Poland jointly with Nazi Germany. He ignores mass arrests and deportations from and executions in eastern Poland and later the Baltic states and eastern Romania. He further forgets the USSR's supplying the Third Reich with raw material, fuel and food to defeat the West. He finds no place to discuss revolutionary boundary and cleansing the area from the reactionaries. That means living off the land and killing traditional leaders. And that is precisely what Soviet and communist guerrillas practiced before the Red Army reappeared in Central and Eastern Europe. The communist partisans robbed to supply themselves since they lacked popular support in most places and hardly could count on the peasants to feed them. The Reds ravaged local, largely anti-communist populations which the German Nazi war machine had already largely despoiled in a ruthless drive for supplies to win the war. Both the revolutionary banditry and extermination of elites went hand in glove with the attempts by the NKVD-led Soviet guerrillas to radicalize the population to attract it to communist ranks. This was carried out by the means of attempts to stage pro-communist uprisings in German-occupied countries, in particular Yugoslavia and Poland. The objective was to relieve hard-pressed Red Army troops at the Eastern Front by rerouting the Wehrmacht forces to deal with rebellions in German-occupied lands and, in the process, by provoking customary Nazi vengeance on the hapless civilian population while communist partisans watched gleefully from the sides. The worse it is, the better it is. This was their revolutionary byword, as always. Incidentally, this, they practiced the same thing in China with the Japanese, so it's not a particularly intermarine invention. It stems from Russia's civil war. The more was destroyed of the old, the greater the, and the greater the losses, in particular among the traditional patriotic elites, the better the post-war socialist plans. As the red replacements were waiting in the wing, and so were the tall tales of the socialist paradise on earth to be built by the communists after the war. Stalin wanted as clean a slate as possible before he pushed Hitler out and replaced the Nazi system with the Soviet one. Last but not least, when the Red Army returned to Central and Eastern Europe, including Poland, it pushed the Wehrmacht out but brought slavery with it. This way, the Poles and others exchanged one totalitarian yoke for another. No, Stalin did not liberate anybody. To liberate is to bring freedom. The Soviet dictator never did that. He re-enslaved the victims of Hitler. He also suavely took advantage of his victory by continuing to harass, to harness Russian nationalism in the service of communism. Surviving Nazism helped Stalin's multitude of Russian and other slaves to coalesce around the Soviet system. Paradoxically, it was Hitler who legitimized Stalin's rule over Russia. By waging a bestial war of extermination, including the Holocaust against the USSR, and instead of liberating the captive people suffering under the communist yoke, 
The Third Reich forced the Soviet slaves of the Bolshevik regime to defend themselves. The alternative was death, as millions of Soviet POWs learned to their horror after they initially surrendered to the Nazis by their droves. It was the people of the USSR who, play, who paid the highest price for Stalin's victory. Dying by their multitudes, they secured a stunning triumph for their communist tyrants. And by marching westwards, they helped their masters enslave further multitudes. Aside from that triumph, the Russians really do not have much to brag about to themselves about their country. Russia holds a world record as the globe's state with arguably the most depressing history. The memories of beating Hitler give the Russians a ray of hope in the black hole of their past. They savor it and Putin takes advantage of their sen uh, sentiment. Make no mistake, the Kremlin has duped the West since 1917 and the red narrative of the Second World War and the putative liberation has been a bestseller among Westerners for at least 70 years. However, Moscow's propaganda is also perhaps even primarily for domestic consumption. And nothing sells better both at home and abroad than the triumph over Hitler mixed with a customary polonophobia. Partly in the West, it feeds on a century of Polan Polak jokes and other demeaning anti-Polish stereotypes. Partly it is a feeling of guilt that Moscow and Western capitalists share. Poland was first to fight both totalitarianisms only to be abandoned by Roosevelt and Churchill and sold to Stalin at Tehran, Yalta, and Potsdam. Western shame perpetuates what Norman Davies calls the allied scheme of history and which in essence is our acquiescence to the Stalinist narrative of liberation. This directly benefits Putin, who brazenly repeats worn-out stereotypes of the Comintern propaganda machine. This will continue with some success until we admit that before and during the Second World War, humanity had two enemies, Hitler and Stalin. And that we only destroyed one and overlooked the other. Thus, Putin feeds off of the consequences of our neglect, neglect and the nauseous presence and continuity of the Kremlin's disinformation. Thank you very much. I will take entertain questions uh, unless they require a separate seminar. So I'll say so. Go ahead. Yes, uh, my question I Representative of the Russian embassy. Uh -huh. My question is when uh, Putin said that Poland started the Second World War? Uh, in late December. No, he never said that. How would he, he say? Said that Poland started the Second World War. Well, okay, so now we're having a semantic match. He said that Poland was responsible. Okay, so what did Okay, so Ambassador Mosbacher is is mistaken. So you can find everything Putin said. You can find on the Okay, why don't you find it since you represent Russia? Please quote it. And what is it all about? 
Otherwise, we won't have this discussion. Okay, so you admit that Putin does not blame Poland for anything and that he admits that Stalin and Hitler were two enemies of humanity, right? No, I didn't quote Putin, I paraphrased him. And if you want... Well, I'm sure he said many things, but I stick to my guns because what he said amounted to blaming Poland for World War II. And that's how it was perceived. And as you know, perceptions are more important than the truth. Yeah, facts are the most important things. That's how it was perceived, what he said. He blamed Poland for World War II. But the Soviets and now the post-Soviets in Russia refer to the great fatherland war and they don't mean September 1st, 1939, do they? So the Second World War started on September the 1st. Russia, uh, Soviet Union at that time was in, was in the local conflict with Japan. Do you remember that? Yeah. Nomohan was called. Nomohan. And you call it Golkin Go. And before that, we fought fascism, uh, fascism, Italian and German Nazism in Spain. Okay, but this is all obfuscation, and that's what I mean. The, the, the Soviet narrative believes that the war began with the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Third Reich. That would be June 1941. The war, it was also with Soviet narrative. Okay. It began on September the 1st with Nazi attack on Poland. Not Soviet attack on Poland. It was not attack. Ah, well, Russian, Okay. Russian okay. point of view, it was not that. Of course, no, no. absolutely not. Was it was. It was not. It was not from the point of view of one of my relatives, Lieutenant Simon Kazimierz who was taken prisoner and then sh uh, shot by the, by the NKVD in the cutting forest in April 1940. Nobody denies that Stalin uh, oh, okay. was was uh, totalitarian and very tragic. Okay. Nobody denies that. Okay. Well. Thank you for augmenting my lecture with the usual propaganda line. And now for questions, please. Excuse me, may I ask a question now, our friend from the Russian embassy? Well, you can ask him afterwards. No, no, it's probably related to the, your topic. Uh, well, well, exactly what you were yeah, talking I mean, about, we, we but, but we would use this unique opportunity to just do... Why? It'll, it'll degenerate into quarrels. So no, 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 like, no, 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 uh, no, no, just, just a clarification. If not, it's not. Uh, probably you are <coughs> there. Uh, the reason why Mr. Putin was so adamant in, the, in December, uh, talking about Poland about five or six times, uh, uh, do you know the reason? why all of a sudden 
Mr. Putin spoke about six times about role of Poland or responsibility of Poland to start the Second World War. Any particular reason or several reasons or compositional reasons uh, that led to this uh, uh, unusual attraction of attention to this particular uh, event? No, 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 December. You know, from December, from, uh, December so this, 10th to December 24th. It was the resolution by the European uh, Council of Poland. But it was in September. It was four months before. So it was a delayed. He's a slow reader. Okay. Okay. Yes, yes, yes Professor Tierney. Yeah, question. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about what the Russians are doing in Milwaukee and Toledo and so forth. They, they're supposed to meddle, and there's collusion. What on earth are those terms? And basically the question is, what do they think they're doing? What are they going to accomplish by doing anything? They're associated with Hillary, associated now with Bernie, associated with Trump, maybe with you or him. You know, for what that's worth. It's really what simple. are they trying to prove by doing anything? Simple. Chaos. But what's beyond chaos? What's beyond chaos? The turnpike is chaos. Perhaps this Perhaps this integration of these United States. Chaos. They're in the game. They can't help themselves. They like to play. Well that's what it is. This is what it is. It is a game. That's why I said there's nothing to see faults. Know what's going on. Move on. Stop being hysterical. Stop accusing uh, Hillary of being uh, a, a, a Russian agent or Trump of being the Kremlin stooge, etc. etc. Just understand this is the modus operandi. They learned it from the Mongols. They've been doing it ever since. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah, it's called it's called political warfare. It's called aktivne mirepriyatsya, disinformation. This is simply how they operate. So I mean, right now we're in a unique position where the internet allows anybody, including foreign entities, to reach out and preach what everyone wants. And why not? I, I wouldn't waste my time on anything like this. I do this. But there are entities that operate in the shadows and create havoc. It's a lot of fun for some, especially those who have a lot of time on their hands. Yes. Yes, sir. I am an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. I've always been puzzled by this thing of Russian interference because I haven't met a single person who changed his or her vote out of this stuff. And so what I see is Russia pouring millions of dollars into Facebook Watching Facebook stock go up as it receives these cash infusions, and wondering if perhaps we couldn't persuade the Russians to toss more cash into Facebook so that we could raise its stock and the stock of other internet giants even further. Um, so I'm a little skeptical about the whole technique. Um, wondering if, in your view, the rightward drift of Polish politics uh, was in some way inspired by Russian tampering, and to what end? Um, you see a role there. No, I, uh, I see what you mean. Same thing if you meet a Pole asking him well, what was changed. 
Here's another question. What about the right-wing drift of Hungarian politics? Did the Kremlin have anything to do with it? The fact is that the Poles are extremely cautious of Russia. They, they like to accuse each other. For instance, now there is an outfit called Confederacja, and it is frequently accused of being the stooge of the Kremlin which it is, it is not. It may be populist or an amalgamation of nationalist populists, uh, divine rights, monarchists, libertarians, and everybody else, but it is not an agent of the Kremlin. But in Poland, uh, the government accuses this right-wing outfit of being the agent of the Kremlin. Did, the, did Moscow push Poland into populism? No, I don't think so. It is a domestic reaction, number one, to post-communism, how the communists became the main beneficiaries of um, the transformation after 1989, and uh, uh, definitely a reaction to cultural imperialism by the EU, the European Union. Um, there is cognizance, a permanent threat looming on Poland's eastern border because of historical reasons that the Russians would move. And as Alexander Dugin said, should America trip, we're going to march into the Baltics. That's just how it's going to be if America trips. Let's hope America doesn't trip for several hundred years and then everything should be honky-dark. Well, by that time, Russia will be a member of NATO. <laughs> <laughs> We, yes, it's very interesting to see what Russia will be. Um, I don't know if um, Gorbachev's plan, youth common of common Europe from the Urals to the Atlantic, will be realized, including Russia being a member of NATO, or there will be decentralization of Russia and the turn from the Kremlin paradigm, which I wish upon you, to the Novgorodian uh, model which is a great hope of Russia. Novgorod had a bell, Kolokol, and an entire tradition of uh, a, a representative government of sorts from early medieval times. And it was not a part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So Russia and the Russians are capable of uh, generating various systems, unfortunately, with uh, what the Mongols inflicted upon Moscovy and what Moscovy gladly accepted has lingered on victoriously. If that charm is broken and uh, the legacy of the Bolsheviks um, will be overcome, then there is hope. There is hope. Remember that until the revolution, Russia's elite was heavily westernized, including the autocrats, including the rulers. They were westernized, they were speakers of western languages, culturally western. All those people were mass murdered by the communists. Almost nobody was left behind. So all of this needs to be restored. And that's a very gradual process. Very gradual process. Yes, I have white Russian friends and sort of step family. I always have a 
fond feeling for General Franga. <laughs> but unfortunately, he didn't win. <laughs> so we have what we have. And now Russia ne needs to figure things out. <coughs> unfortunate continuity with the Czechists. And they also have to figure out how to operate in this post-Soviet zone, no longer uh, terrorized by a sick ideology of Marxism, Leninism, and other pathologies. So, the longer there is peace, the better, because the Russians simply will start figuring things out on their own. So there is hope eventually, I don't know if in a few hundred years or so, but I am more sanguine than, say, our friend Vladimir Bukowski. Anyway, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Guillermo Soma, to you, formerly of Radio Liberty. Uh, there is a statistic that's been going around for ages that 27 million Soviets, there were 27 deaths during World War II. And uh, today, that's morphed like into 27 million Russians. Um, you are aware, I'm sure, that Norman Davies, yeah. uh, in his book, uh, No Simple Victory, analyzed this 27 million. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he came up with the conclusion, uh, what conclusion, I don't know the exact numbers, but the in absolute numbers, Ukrainians, there are more, most Ukrainians died. And proportionately, Belarusians suffered the most. Yes, uh, percentage. And the rest were other nationalities. Well, percentage-wise, first of all, percentage-wise, it was the Jews of the East who suffered most. They almost disappeared, except uh, the ones who were deported to Siberia, and a few who fled East. Uh, who killed the chief uh, rabbi of the Polish army? He was shot with my great uncle at the Captain Forest. Oh, it was a Polish officer. What do you think? Uh, where did the chief rabbi of Warsaw die? Well, in the Gulag. But we're talking maybe a hundred thousand victims. So, in comparison to the Holocaust, not too many people focus on that. So, the main victim of um, uh, uh, World War Two, the, the main victims were the Jewish people. As far as everybody else, the percentages in uh, Belarusian lands are staggering. Uh, the Slavs there, except it's very hard to differentiate by ethnicity and mentality. What I mean is there was a pacification of Khatin, which Soviet propaganda attempted to substitute for the massacre of the Khatin forest. Hatin was a Hutor, a Zashchanek, a nobility village. They were Catholics and Poles, but they are counted as Soviet citizens. And they were not massacred by the Germans. It was an, a Ukrainian SS auxiliary outfit who killed them. But they are counted as Poles or Russians now. The mess is incredible. Sometimes you have, uh, when you take, say, the Jewish victims of Vilna, the Ponary Forest, so sometimes the Poles count them as Polish losses, the Lithuanians as Lithuanian losses, and the Soviets counted them as Soviets. So anytime 
anytime there's war and chaos and anarchy, it's extremely, incredibly difficult to come up with a crisp tally, if you know what I mean. It's a daunting proposition. Remember Babi Yar? Well, Babi Yar and uh, Babi Yar, uh, Kiev's Jews were murdered. Not all of them, but many Kiev's Jews. But not only, not only, before Hitler came, Stalin and the NKVD were shooting not just Ukrainians, also victims of the Polish operation of the, the anti-Polish operation of the NKVD. So anywhere in the in the post-Soviet zone, you put a shovel in, from Kazakhstan to Estonia, you'll bump into a skull and dead bodies. Yes, and the greatest victims of this carnage are Russian people. That's, in terms of numbers, who was murdered uh, most prodigiously because it started for them in 1917. See, half the Ukrainians were lucky they were in Poland. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. So, if, if uh, there is ever a tally of all the losses in the 20th century, you will be shocked. Look at World War I. I call it a lesser apocalypse. And then look at the interwar period. This was supposed to be peacetime. One of my dinosaurs, uh, mentors, was Robert Conquest, Margaret Thatcher's ad uh, advisor on the Soviet Union. Uh, Robert Conquest figured out that according to the official Soviet figures, this was before any archives were opened, there was a deficit when Stalin ordered a census. There was a deficit of 25 million people. It doesn't mean the communists murdered 25 million people. It also means that is how many were not born or died prematurely of diseases, starvation, etc. 25 million people. Guess what Stalin did when he found out about this? He ordered all the census takers shot. Yep. Yes. Anyway, uh, statistics is always a tricky business in times of peril. But uh, as far as the Soviet Union is concerned, uh, Ukrainian historians have been able to revise figures because Initially, we thought about 7 million died in collectivization. Right now, it's down to about 3 million. 4 million. Or 4, okay, 4 million. Well, I've seen 2, so I was going to. And there's also estimates of up to 10 million. Yes, 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 there yes, but that, that's knows. what I mean. Nobody that is knows. exactly what I mean. Look at Kazakhstan. Um, two monographs have just appeared. Aside from conquest, there had never been anything that talked about Kazakhstan. The Kazakhs have to come to grips with their own tragedy. There were nomads. Like in Ukraine, there was nowhere to hide and nothing to eat. I mean, we're talking about horrendous tragedy. So isn't it better to kick Poland than talk about his own Czechist past? His grandfather, who was Lenin's cook? That's a special department in the Czech, by the way. And his dad, who was NKVD? 
mean, I, I don't know how the Russians eventually are going to sort it out. I really don't. I know that uh, nothing lasts forever, so they eventually will have to do so. Anyway, any more questions? Yes, sir. So back in 2010, there were it was a totally different position, it seems, in the Kremlin than from today. I think that should make statements saying that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact were, was a mistake. And then most visually, we saw Polish, Ukrainian, American troops marching in Red Square on May 9th. Uh, what conditions made that possible, and do you think that, that we're ever going to go back to that? Well, Marxism-Leninism is dead as an ideology, but not the dialectics. So dialectics dictate that you can approach any topic in a relative manner. If it serves the Kremlin today to say that the Ribbentrop-Molotov pact never happened, that's how it is. If they change their mind, then it's going to be otherwise. It's all relative and fluid. It's not absolutist. They are not interested in the truth. The masters of the Kremlin are interested in power. So don't worry. People to people diplomacy. Just talking. I always try to encourage the Poles to relax. No. Talk to people. <laughs> Eventually you will be able to I don't know. Swap ideas at least. Don't worry about how things are. You shouldn't worry about things you have no influence over. Yes, sir. And just a looking forward question. Uh, as a former, dip former diplomat, I'm always thinking of how countries that are very exposed but with, but with um, fairly influential friends should engage with a country like the Russian Federation in conditions like today. Um, what, I mean, I don't know if you spend much time thinking about what, what Poland, the Polish government can do today in its bilateral relations with the Russian Federation, backed by its relations within the, in the EU, which are worsening, yeah. backed by its relations with Germany, uh, which, which, should be, which are not very good. Um, that is not good for Poland when conditions are really tough with this kind of ideological offensive coming out of Moscow, but at the same time, its strongest friends in Europe are also moving away from this. This, I think, you know, as somebody who hasn't followed this region for a long time, I think it's, it's, it's very disquieting. And what, what would your recommendation well, for Poland be to, to shore up its situation and engage with everybody, including with Moscow? Poland has been very successful in this government, in um, working or even elucidating a coherent policy towards Russia. This particular government. It has or is not? It has not. Ah, yeah. At the same time, it's difficult to say what a successful policy would be. Yeah. Like, uh -huh. admit that Stalin's arrival in Poland was a liberation, both in 1939 and 1945. Would that please the Kremlin? <laughs> I think Poland ought well, to. Constant... asking you to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but no, no, no. I, I hope not. I think Poland ought to concentrate on itself. It ought to work with the United States to make sure that Poland becomes the hub of America's LNG. 
and then it doles it out to Western Europe, then, Ber then Berlin will have no reason to be in bed with Moscow. Because the Germans always complain, oh, there is no energy, we have to, and it's really not that, it is the old dilemma of uh, Prussia. The Prussians fall in love with the Russians, usually over the dead body of Poland, then they have necrophilia, then the lovers <laughs> quarrel, and we have a world war. This has been like this, this pattern, since the 18th century. So this pattern must be broken. Exactly. And it can only be broken if we continue to heed the advice of Lord Ismay, the first Secretary General of NATO. The objective of British policy, I quote, British foreign policy, is to keep the Russians out, the Germans down, and the Americans in. This hasn't changed. I would say certain things have changed. See, I think today it would behoove Poland to have stronger relationships with, to do what can to build strong relationships within the EU, especially countries to its west, Germany and France, and outside the EU, with Ukraine, uh -huh. of course with the United States, uh -huh. always, definitely but also France, Germany, and Ukraine. There is, a, there is an Eastern um, program which uh, essentially provides for Poland's bending over backwards for Ukraine and to a greater extent Lithuania, despite the poor treatment of Polish minorities there. There is some of this in the works, but um, I don't think it's enough. As far as Berlin and Paris, well, both are annoyed that Poland is free so it can say things. And that includes both smart things and stupid things. But that is what nations do when they are free. They elect their representatives. Some are sharp, some are not, and they speak their mind. Both the French and the Germans are annoyed with this. For instance, a, the French during the war in Iraq... Yeah, the Gulf War. They never missed the opportunity to, to be silent. Yeah. The, yeah, not only that, they called Poland America's Trojan donkey in Europe. So, anyway, ha, but then there, is, there is also another problem. Poland is more akin to Russia as far as public policy, attitude towards marriage, family, etc. It is a traditional, traditionalist country. Uh, Germany is not. And France has been a dark place since the revolution of 1789 and my monarchist friends never stopped complaining about that. In comparison, even, I mean, very conservative uh, Polish patriots I know say, look at Putin, he took care of things. Not that they like Putin, but they appreciate it. So it's much better and easier for Poland to be aligned with D.C. than with uh, Brussels, which they consider under the control of Berlin. And Paris is just a sideshow because the French like to make noises on behalf of the Germans. So it's a, it's a very difficult situation. Poland worked as a team with the Brits. Now the Poles are depressed because of Brexit, not because they 
they deny the importance of sovereignty. They liked Brexit for that reason, but they thought that since the Brits and the Poles are America's best allies in Europe, it was much better for Great Britain to remain in the European Union. But it is what it is. The British are gone. So I'm not saying this situation is impossible. Also, when you look at um, the Russian active measures in Western Europe, uh, when, you, when you look at um, various operations, most of them entail misinvestments, like in Facebook. Uh, but when you look to natural allies, people who would protect family, marriage, etc., you look, look, you look for such allies in Italy, Germany, or France. Almost invariably, Russia is there. So I have friends in Italy, uh, hardcore monarchist, traditionalist outfit, opposed to Muslim immigration, very religious. <coughs> they think uh, the Pope is, the current Pope is Kumbaya or worse. Very decent human beings. They were the only ones to spot Russian influences at a conference that united or all Italian traditionalist, monarchist, radical nationalists, and other forces. They they were the only ones to leave. It was it's an outfit. It's a very uh, because they understood what was going on. Everybody else said, "Wow, and there's money too. We can organize more conferences. We can publish stuff." So. It is very hard for the Poles to look to network with, or conservative Poles to look to network with um, the like-minded socially and traditionally like-minded Western Europeans because more often than not, they love uh, the Kremlin. And sometimes they even consider like Pat Buchanan, well, I shouldn't say Pat Buchanan, but Pat Buchanan certainly uh, has hope for Putin, and he's, he's a paradigm of a, of a sort. So, but Europe is afflicted by this to a much greater extent. So what do you, so what do you have? Social engineering, leftist social engineering in the EU and various European countries on the one hand that comes from liberalism and various forms of leftism, or you have either populist or nationalist or traditionalist outfits that go Google-eyed towards the Kremlin. It is very hard to operate in uh, circumstances like this. Further, when you look at Belarus, Ukraine, even Czechia or Slovakia, any clumsy Polish attempt to try to unite the Intermarium in some way is perceived as Polish imperialism. Um, you go to Kamienic Podolsk and all you see in the museum is how Polish lords oppressed them. And I said, oh my god, but this, this is the Wisniewiecki family. They were first of all Orthodox and Ruthenian and Moldavian, by the way. So Where is this museum? Kamienic Podolsk, Kamienic Podolsk, in Podolia, in Ukraine today. But that's their narrative too. So of all the bad things, I prefer the Holodomor narrative because what are other options that we have as far as Ukraine is concerned? 14th, 
Waffen-SS Galician Division, UFA, Polish Lords, or Holodomor? I'll take Holodomor. It's very, very difficult to clobber a country together. I get it. At the same time, the, most of the Polish Lords are dead. There is nothing left. For a long time, yeah. Uh, they've been dead for a long time, and their descendants are usually in exile or not really aware of the past if they stayed behind in the old country. Because communism levels everything, it deracinates and bastardizes. It bastardizes. Anyway, time heals things, and that's my hope. Not just for the Intermarium, but for Russia too. Eventually, we'll see something emerging. I'm not quite sure that my friends that I have in Russia, as opposed to Russian white emigres, the uh, Zapadniks have it right, because their denial of Russia and Putin is to embrace essentially all pathologies that are sexy currently in the West. And they do not reflect the West, they reflect part of the West. So I don't know when the heck they are running with that. Yes, I always chill for Memorial because I like to research <laughs> and I like documents, but uh, many of, of, of the other outfits that you see in Russia uh, are no different from Antifa here and uh, various squads running around wrecking havoc around America. It's, would you have Nicholas II or the Bolsheviks? Yeah, I'd have Nicholas II. Remember, the Russians, it's sad, but the Russians haven't had it this good since Nicholas II. I told you the history is very depressing, but this is simply a fact. Uh, with time and healing, I think it should be all right. And I don't think that Poland at the moment is equipped uh, to provide the necessary leadership. You would have to educate many more people and put the trauma of slavery and mass murder behind. They're very awkward. <laughs> you can see them operating at, at the diplomatic level. It's not that there is bad will, but uh, it takes a long time to emancipate yourself from mental slavery, and that's what communism is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Hi. How do you perceive the Three Seas Initiative and its effect on the EU, especially that it includes non-EU states? Well, the EU doesn't like it, meaning the bureaucrats in No, Polish donkey. Oh, what are those upstarts that they're talking about an LNG hub in Croatia? Maybe even in Bulgaria, not to mention Poland. What the heck is this? We didn't sign off on this. There's no bureaucracy uh, that runs this and the EU. So how dare they? That's the attitude of the bureaucrats in the EU. Geopolitically, I think the Germans are of two minds. On the one hand, they are nervous and upset that someone took the initiative. On the other hand, some of the German politicians said, eh, I can't beat them, join them. But if they join, they'll take over because they have all the money and the know-how. So when there is no American leadership, you shouldn't be too optimistic. 
we shouldn't be too optimistic. Uh, plus, the three C's initiative is quite robust. Uh, as you know, at IWP, we've been talking about the intervaling the lands between the C's for almost 20 years now. And uh, we've produced lectures and a book about it. But it is now in the hands of practitioners, most notably Ambassador Dan Fried and Ian Brzezinski. They go, knock on the doors, set things up. As you may know, the Congress has just voted a billion dollars on the three C's initiatives. It's, now it's in a different pipeline. Our duty here as a school is talk about things that hardly anybody wants to talk about and then describe things. But then you have to get engineers who get to the nitty-gritty of the Intermarium project, and so far so good. And as I said, so long as there is no war, there is time for trial and error, there is, try, there is time to convince uh, various people to get on board. It simply, uh, it simply makes sense for those countries from the Baltic to the Black and, and Adriatic Seas to stick together and work together. Otherwise, they become uh, the devil's playpen. Anytime the intermarium implodes because of the Ottomans, the Moscovites, or the Prussians, there is war or slavery. When it is independent, it's awkward, it's annoying because you know how many different nationalities there are? It's easier, even for the United States, to deal with just one entity. If you have to go and have an embassy in Riga, what is Riga? What is Bucharest? You know? All those weird people, they all have their hang-ups, yes. The people in Appalachians don't like New York. Neither do they like New York in Texas. In fact, it can line up the whole country, starting with Montana. It's just a fact of life that we are human beings and that we are diverse. And the intermarium is a regional attempt to put some order into things and coordinate policies. So the Polish government has been all right as far as that is concerned. In particular, in, uh, in the most brilliant way, uh, the people behind energy policy have performed beyond my minimal expectations. They're pretty good. But it'll take time to, to educate and generate ladies and gentlemen who are leaders and don't care about those things. It'll take time. And everybody will play the game, including Russia. And uh, Russia has bigger things to worry about, in particular China. So everything else for Russia, in a way, is a sideshow. They will not stop playing. We'll see what happens. Anyway, one more question. I have to go prepare a lecture, <laughs> a seminar for him. One more question? Okay, thank you very much. Have fun. Bye -bye. Thank you very much.